and welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the very busy intersection of faith and reason. I'm Doug Keck, kind of the gatekeeper here at the Mothership in Irondale, Alabama, where Mother Angelica started all back in 1981, believe it or not. Your questions are central to this program, so send them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. And check out all of Father Spitzer's myriad websites, themagiscenter.com, crediblecatholic.com, and purposefuluniverse.com. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN On Demand page and on our YouTube channel. And uh, we recently added the EWTN Global Stations of the Cross for Peace in Ukraine to our on-demand page. That was very, very popular, very, very powerful. We're gonna have it on the network, but you can go to our on-demand page. There's so many programs there, check it out. It really is underutilized by our audience. Today, How the Devil Works from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives, available naturally through the EWTN Religious Catalog. We're sure you have it already. If not, pick it up for a friend. And the book of the month for April, Answering the Questions of Jesus by the late, great, Father Andrew Apostoli, a book that was overlooked when it first came out. Check it out. And that's by the great Father Andrew Apostoli. Speaking of another great priest, we have Father Spitzer. We turn to him out on the West Coast. Great to see you, Father. I'm great to be with you, Doug. If you'd like to kick everything off as normal with a prayer, that'd be great. Sure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for all the blessings you give us, especially the blessing of this Holy Week when we enter into the mystery of your suffering, your passion, your death, your resurrection, that is the sacrifice that liberated us all. We ask you, Lord, too, to bless Doug, myself, our whole audience this day with your Holy Spirit, inspiring, guiding, and protecting us so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen and Mary, seat of wisdom, pray Very for far. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Very good. So uh, let's get to a couple of news articles before we get to our sure. questions. Here's an important one that, that came out. I know we featured it on our news show uh, yesterday, uh, News Nightly, and uh, this is from an article by Fran Mayer, who's... Uh, a great writer and uh, associate mm -hmm. of uh, Archbishop Chaput over a number of years and featured at the Napa Institute, in fact, uh, last summer, as mm -hmm. I recall. And yes. uh, he writes an article which is based around this, uh, this letter that was sent apparently on April 11th that was, uh, came out, was just made public, I think, yesterday uh, or so. And it basically, uh, from an article from the Catholic News Agency, more than 70 bishops, including four cardinals from the United States, Canada, Africa, have added their voices to, to this particular uh, document called the Fraternal Open Letter to Our Brother Bishops in Germany. And it really kind of focuses on, I'll give the highlights, uh, some concerns mm -hmm. that the, these uh, bishops and cardinals have about the, not the synodal path, but what's going on in Germany specifically. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And their concerns, I wanted to read a couple and get your reaction to them. One was, mm -hmm. they said, the German synodal path documents seem largely inspired not by scripture and tradition, which the Second Vatican Council says are the single sacred deposit of the Word of God, but by sociological analysis, contemporary political, including gender ideologies. What's your thought? Well, my thought is, you know, I haven't studied the uh, German uh, documents, but the things I'm seeing in the press 
uh, uh, do not impress me. Mm -hmm. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the Germans seem to really have moved off the track of not only good theological analysis, but good spiritual uh, depth. Uh, and so instead of having the, the, uh, the truth emerge from the heart of the church, it's looking like the truth is emerging from sociological analysis. Mm -hmm. The problem with sociological analysis is that it is fraught with all kinds of potential ideologies and uh, agendas. In other words, you can manipulate sociological data uh, from now un until the, the, the end of the world. And believe me, the Marxists did it. And not only did they do it with reckless abandon, but they did it um, to basically underscore uh, you know, a, a view of economics and a view of uh, world political ideology that, that really was terribly harmful uh, throughout the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And still, you know, here we've got, you know, we, we've got so many examples in our past history where, uh, you, know, you know, some bishops went and, and took the, the path of, you know, Rogerian psychology and, mm -hmm. you know, where that wound up uh, right. leading us. And some bishops actually took the path of Marxism and the liberation theology movement uh, in, in Latin America and you know, look at where that led mm -hmm. and now of course we've got the new sociological analysis that's going to open its arms widely uh, to now gender ideology and other kinds of things um, they're going to basically tell us how good it is even though we have very good psychiatric studies that show exactly the opposite a staggering 20 times increase in suicides uh, once you you know 10 to 15 years after the surgery etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm -hmm. All these things are going to be applauded in a new ideological way with all kinds of new studies. And of course, you know, uh, uh, Mark Twain's uh, thoughts about statistics <laughs> being the greatest form of lying. Mm -hmm. And so the, the point is that, uh, yeah, I think we have to be exceedingly careful of any kind of analysis that comes uh, from basically a, an untested sociological program uh, which, uh, you know, whose assumptions need to be, you know, not only rigorously scrubbed by academics, but then it has to be first and foremost grounded in the truth that comes from scripture and tradition from Jesus himself. Right. And if it's not starting there, then it's likely to wind up in some kind of serious error. Right. There, there's uh, in the sec uh, next paragraph here where they, they talk about uh, the synodal path as well. They, they make a point of which I which kind of jumped out at me. It said, the conscience does not create truth, nor is conscience a matter of personal preference or self-assertion. Uh, Jesus is the truth yeah. who sets us free. They go on to say, but isn't that central to what our issue is today? Is that people do believe that they their conscience decides what's true and not true. Yeah, a conscience says, you know, Thomas Aquinas and so many others would say, a conscience gives us a general sense of the moral truth. Emphasis on the general. In other words, it gives us a sense that, you know, stealing in general is bad or murder in general is bad. You know, when we uh, contemplate it, when we contemplate lying and dishonesty, etc., something within us is almost like, as Newman would say, God's voice almost speaking through us is saying something akin to uh, this, this is wrong, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's beneath you, it's, it's contrary to my will, etc. You can almost feel it coming through you. Now, if that's what conscience does, yes, that, that those general norms are very important. However, 
the church since its very inception has always stated that conscience needs to be informed. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have specific norms. It doesn't apply specific norms to specific situations. These things require, uh, you know, the interpretation of the truth of Jesus Christ. And the truth of Jesus Christ brings the generic truths of conscience to its fruition, to its specificity, to its application in the particular world. We need Jesus and we need the interpretation of Jesus by the church in order to give specificity to our conscience. The idea that conscience with its generic precepts can come up with the truth is just simply wrong and it has always been recognized as wrong. And boy, St. Augustine's, you know, who, who certainly was, uh, you know, the, a primary promoter of listening to one's conscience mm -hmm. would be the first to say, uh, we need to inform our conscience. So conscience doesn't, perform, you, know, uh, uh, you know, get to the truth by itself. We mm -hmm. need to inform our conscience with the truth of Jesus Christ to get conscience then to kind of help guide us and norm us in the right direction in specific situations with those wonderful feelings of guilt when we anticipate doing something bad and those uh, uh, better feelings of nobility when we're about to do something good. So that's the, uh, uh, the, the principal idea. I mean, whoever's talking about conscience mm -hmm. uh, being separated from Jesus or the tradition, um, they surely uh, have a, not only an overstated view of conscience, right. but uh, they're talking about a conscience that doesn't exist. Conscience was meant to be informed uh, by um, right. the specific truths of Jesus. Okay, another another point they make here uh, that, that I want to touch on as well, and I thought it was interesting, is that synodal paths focus on quote-unquote power in the church, and this again is the German synodal path we're talking about here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Church suggests a spiritual spirit fundamentally at odds with the real nature of Christian life. And they go on to say the reform of structures is not at all the same thing as the conversion of hearts. But isn't that central to the world we're living today where there is no individual sin, everything's a function of structures? Yeah, well, that's, you know, it's a real problem, uh, again, with social analysis. I mean, when social analysis is done by somebody who, without a converted heart, it's very different than when social analysis is done by somebody with a converted heart. In other words, the converted heart is the one that gets to the truth of morality, that gets to the truth of what will save us, that gets to the truth of what is goodness itself. And if you, if you don't have a converted heart, mm -hmm. um, you're probably moving either in darkness or something that is ignorant of what the good is. And if that is the case, then uh, the, the social analysis is going to wind up being no better uh, than Marxism's progression into Leninism. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just not going to be any better than that, and I, uh, you can't hope for anything better than that. And look at the cruelties that ensued, the wars that ensued. Look at the things that have been done, timeless, you know, time and time again. You know, this is, uh, this is, this is uh, almost like mm -hmm. creating the same mistake that we have lived through uh, <laughs> 
you know, in, in mm. Maoism, in, you know, in fascism, communism. It's always the same thing. It, it begins with a social analysis that is done by an unconverted heart. Even Hitler, mm. you know, I mean, a, a truly an unconverted heart, but a Mein Kampf is filled with his specula speculations about social analysis, right. reviving the German economy, all the terrible things that were done by various races mm -hmm. uh, that led to the demise of the German um, Republic during the First World War and how we're going to get out of all of this by a new social analysis, by, you know, a, a socialist democratic republic, etc., etc. You get the whole point. I mean, we have been dealing with uh, social analysis till we're blue in the face and it's killing us. We need it to be literally. done by converted right. hearts. Right. Yes, kill, literally. And why and is it always utopianism? Why is it always this form of utopianism that always ends up so bloody? Well, you know, I mean, the, the so-called good society, again, if it's not being uh, prescribed by somebody who has a, a morality, a real morality mm -hmm. uh, that, that is, you know, attached to doing the good first. Uh, but uh, thinks that they're going to bring about the utopia without considering the primary principle, the end does not justify the means. They'll use any means to get there. Mm -hmm. And so a utopian, you know, is kind of a teleolo teleological ethicist uh, who knows no test of the means mm -hmm. used to get to that end. And if you can use any means to get to the end, why? You don't have to worry about those silly old things like commandments. Thou shalt not kill, steal, murder, cheat. You, you know, you can do anything because at the end of the day, you'll get to the greatest amount of neighbor welfare for the greatest number of people. But a lot of people are going to have to die in order for that to happen. And then when all the people are dying, your end winds up being undermined by the very thing that you thought would bring it about in this grand utopia. So the, the idea you know, is that uh, utopianism never works because right. utopianism is shooting for an end without testing the means. You need the means to be tested by a genuinely right. converted heart, uh, moved by the truth of Jesus Christ, uh, moved by, uh, you know, the interpretation uh, of the truth of Jesus Christ by, by some uh, agency uh, akin to the church because the church was started by Jesus right. himself. Right, and it's also good to point out, as they do in the article, that there was also a letter written previously in March by the Nordic country bishops and also one in February from the Polish Bishops' Conference. So this is part of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a series of letters of concern from various parts of the world. Yeah. Also, he mentions here, uh, the heart of the April letter lies here. The urgency of our joint remarks is rooted in Romans 12, and especially Paul's caution, do not be conformed to this world. Yeah, well, there it is. Again, if you're trying to conform yourself to the world and make the church acceptable to a world that has already been formed by the secular culture, you're going to go backwards. I mean, everything that you're talking about is everything's backwards. You know, in other words, you've got conscience now, which needs to be informed by the truth of Jesus Christ, is now going to somehow trump 
the truth of Jesus Christ. That's backwards. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, we get to another thing. We now are going to conform ourselves to a culture which has been formed by a secular ethic, which is contrary to that of Jesus. So, I mean, I mean, you know, the, the solution's already there, uh, that we're going to just simply throw Jesus away, mm -hmm. as it were, throw his teaching away uh, in order to conform ourselves to an ethic that is clearly contrary to Jesus. And, and so everything is backwards, and when you have backwards kinds of things, uh, as you probably know, they not only don't work, they kill a lot of people, they hurt a lot of people, they wind up driving a lot of people and encouraging a lot of people, uh, you know, toward uh, suicidality, toward depression, toward anxiety, and above all, toward a break with their uh, religion and a break with their God, which is causing the suicidality, the depression, the anxiety, and the substance abuse. Just was looking at that wonderful statistic today that, of course, the um, uh, uh, drug uh, substance abuse and the deaths of young people due to substance abuse has doubled in the last three years. Doubled in three years. Deaths right. by substance abuse. Uh, oh yes, things, the secular culture is doing very, <laughs> very well by you know dealing you know uh, you know in terms of emotional health and moral health relational health marital health and spiritual health the secular culture we should conform ourselves to that wonderful secular culture that has plummeted mm -hmm. all forms of of those health from emotional to relation to marital to spiritual i mean it's just a moral i mean it's just it's all you know collapsing underneath us that's what we really want to do conform ourselves to that it'll make us popular It'll make us very well respected by the world. We have to convert the world. That's what Jesus Christ asked, not have the culture convert us right. through, the, through the very non-morality that is killing the culture around us that it has purportedly saved. I mean, it, it, it's amazing right. how backwards all of this is and how progressive its proponents think they are. It's right. unbelievable. Absolutely. And it's interesting, you were talking about suicide. And this other article here uh, that I have, uh, which uh, has to do with a story that Oregon, the state of Oregon, has dropped its residency requirement for assisted suicide, meaning <laughs> doctors will be allowed to prescribe lethal drugs to people who do not reside in the state. Oregon Right to Life, a pro-life group active in the state, deployed the, settle the settlement and came from a lawsuit, expressed worry that this would mark the start of death tourism in Oregon, sort of what I guess was going on, has gone on in uh, the Netherlands. But this is yeah. another great thing which is here. This is the name of the advocacy organization who pushed for the expanded legalization of assisted suicide. If this isn't Orwellian, you know what their name is? Compassion and Choices. Oh yeah, compassion choices. That's yeah. a new euphemism, of course, for the Hemlock Society. Right, absolutely. So, uh, yeah. You know, uh, uh, yeah. So, uh, uh, believe me, I, I, it, it always amazes me, uh, you know, how many uh, euphemistic, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, uh, renamings they have. But uh, yeah, yeah, yet another one. And uh, what can I say? I mean, this is was absolutely predictable. I was having a, a debate with a guy on. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, it was filmed on the Today Show a while back um, um, when I was doing the Washington Amendment. Um, and uh, you know he was advocating this, and and of course I said, oh, you know, uh, uh, we're going to turn Washington um, into kind of the suicide state. Why not? 
you know, it's self-liberation after mm -hmm. all. Liberation, mm -hmm. but if you're dead, how liberated can you be? You know, so uh, for all intents and purposes, you know, every, again, you know, there's backward logic here uh, that's going on. And so I, I suppose, right. you know, that uh, uh, this, this should have been predicted right. uh, long ago when Oregon passed this bill. And they're so progressive, we can see uh, just how well their state right. is faring. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, with uh, what was that? Uh, the, was it Derek Humphreys? Was that his name? I'm trying to remember. Yes, that was a from long time ago. System. Final yeah, exit. Right. Mm -hmm. right, exactly. Yeah, right. I think he was helping his wife right. exit uh, very quickly as well. Was yes, he concern. was. Yeah. Uh, uh, somewhat contrary to maybe her will. Her, her own so. opinion, right, of what should happen. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Yes. yes <laughs> yeah, right, right. exactly. Just yeah. want to encourage you, dear, to move along. <laughs> yeah. Be a good example for everybody. Here's the drug. There you go. Oh, right. yeah, absolutely. And one last story that, that has to do with uh, universities, since I, as a former university mm -hmm. president, this has to do with uh, the College of Holy Cross. And related to this is Bishop Robert McManus, uh, for the fifth consecutive time, chose not to attend the graduation because he had come out with a statement against the Nativity School, a middle school affiliated with Holy Cross. The school had been flying a Black Lives Matter and a gay pride flag next to the American flag for the last over a year. And when he learned of it, the bishop said he, he thought that was inappropriate. They shouldn't be flying those flags. He said, as the bishop of this diocese, McManus said, I must teach that it is imperative that a Catholic school use imagery and symbols which are reflective of that school's values and principles so as to be clear with young people who are being spiritually and morally formed for this future. So that's a shout out to him, I think. Well, you know, I, again, you know, when you're dealing you know, with these organizations, you ha you have to look at the whole thing. I mean, on the surface, you might say, well, they're trying to do something decent uh, for people in in you know who are you know sociologically uh, have been you know ignored or marginalized. But then you start looking into this thing, mm -hmm. and you start seeing these Marxist principles or something that are going on in them, and you you don't want to buy the whole package. It's it's terribly misleading. And so, of course, I can see why the bishop is uh, concerned. Uh, no Absolutely. question about it. Absolutely. It's, it can be confusing, and certainly, I think, with uh, some of the revelations of how some of the money has been spent by the, at least the organization, uh, yeah. BLM, uh, has raised oh. concerns, as well as, I think, oh. Oh. some the of the fallout. they affirm. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move to yeah. some questions people uh, sent to us here. First uh, one, uh, I guess this one was really addressed to me initially, said, Dear Mr. Keck, you recently asked why are all the churches empty? She said, th this woman writes, they are not my church. The Cathedral of St. John Evangelist in Boise, Idaho is thriving. The 10 a.m. Sunday Mass is stuffed with young people, singles and married. Lots of young girls wear veils. The young men and women kneel to receive on the tongue. All this has happened here is a gift from God. Just thought you want to hear some good news. And this was from Rita. And we appreciate the good news, Rita. Yeah, uh, well, actually, we're finding the same thing um, uh, here in uh, uh, Orange County, anyway. A lot of the churches are not only filling up, some of the churches are doing better now than they did before COVID. So I think a lot of the dire predictions that people were expecting now that, you know, the, the, at least the COVID breaks, uh, you know, seems mm -hmm. to be... Uh, the COVID, you know, maybe is breaking a little bit. I know there's a resurgence, resurgence in some places, but but the main thing is the resurgent uh, variant is, does not seem to be 
um, strong enough to, to be causing a, a large number of deaths. Yeah. But the, the, nevertheless, is this I the, think people is this are... Is the uh, midterm election variant uh, we're going to be dealing yeah. with? <laughs> Maybe so. Is that the official name Maybe or the so. unofficial name? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, no. But uh, so you can pretty much see that, you know, that people are coming back. They feel a freedom mm -hmm. uh, to come back into the church. There is just such a feeling of joy. I mean, I'm, I'm here at Christ Cathedral, and mm -hmm. we've got uh, people really pouring out of the, the, the church here. Do you, also all of think, the do you also think that because of the nature of what people have been through the last couple of years that at least those who took the time to reflect have, have maybe had a sense that, you know, that, that maybe they were missing, they had time to stop and realize what they were missing and also realize the things they thought they could count on they couldn't and the faith is there for them? I really believe that. I think people were on a psychological low. Mm -hmm. I think they, their children especially, uh, as you, you know, I just was talking about that increase mm -hmm. in, um, you know, uh, substance abuse deaths uh, that are taking place and the increase in suicide uh, and suicidality uh, as well uh, among young people. I think um, so many people are looking at this and going, wow, it's not just the isolation that was bad. Uh, you know, we really want to get back to some things that matter some things that, that really gave us substance and meaning mm -hmm. in our lives, something that gave us a, a sense of absolute hope rather than the, the usual relativism. And I think they are going mm -hmm. back to the church, not just for the comfort of it, but for the meaning of it and the substance of it. And, and uh, this is exactly what we were made for. We weren't mm -hmm. made for relativism. We were made for some norms uh, that, that were absolute. And we were made for a hope that is eternal and absolute. And of course we were made, you know, St. Augustine says, you know, for thou hast made us for thyself and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And so the idea then is if we're just, you know, going to the baseball game or we're just turning on the television set or just loafing around at home and not doing anything productive with our lives, how long can that kind of you know, sort of lethargy stand, that sort of mm -hmm. self-entertainment stand before we, we basically amuse ourselves to death. How long will it be before that great existential boredom is going to set in because we so desperately need the substance and the right. meaning and the depth and the hope and the eternity and the perfect truth, love, goodness, beauty, and home? How long? How long are we going to be able right. to, uh, to, to, to uh, sustain that? And so I think people are going, you know, maybe I should just go back to church. Maybe I should start looking into that good old morality mm -hmm. again that I got from my catechism class or whatever it was. Maybe I should start, uh, you know, looking in, you know, to, into reading scripture again. You know, maybe I should start going back to something more fundamental that will really give my family life a new substance mm -hmm. and meaning, that will really give my, my own being a new substance and meaning, that will really give my cultural interactions, my work interactions, a new substance and meaning. 
that will really bring me to the true person and the true dignity that I'm supposed to have. And I think they're doing it. I mean, I, I, you know, they may not do it according to the Spitzerian uh, bloviated uh, <laughs> uh, you know, articulation of it, but nevertheless, I think that's is, what is that out in print? Uh, where is there anywhere I can find <laughs> that specifically, or is that on your website? Or <laughs> Probably in some fashion or another. <laughs> okay. There's it could be, de be derived from it. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. yeah. exactly. Right. Bloviations <laughs> abound. <laughs> so let me, here's another question somebody wrote to us. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, it seems today's women have been robbed of their modesty by powers in the church. I don't know about that. Who took away the mandate to wear a head covering and not wear pants at mass. Women now dress like men at mass. Your thoughts on this? What can be done to restore modesty and femininity? It's Carol. Of course, I, I think we could say we could all probably dress better for church uh, on both sides of the aisle, so to speak. The, uh, yeah, I think, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I certainly agree that, you know, this, the idea of a Sunday best is a wonderful thing. But I, I do not want to turn people out of the church because they're not in their Sunday best. Mm -hmm. And, of course, some people don't have a Sunday best. And some people, honestly, Carol, don't know any better. Mm -hmm. And it's really difficult for a priest to try and come out and put in a dress code mm -hmm. that really is so unintelligible to a person that's been raised in contemporary society. You know, it, it would just turn a lot of people off. So I think we're kind of stuck uh, a little bit f with where we are. And I think we have to do this kind of from the bottom up where, you know, friends and family just kind of encourage people to go back to the idea of wearing your Sunday best, uh, you know, but th that's going to have to be done more from, you know, friends and family than, than really having the poor priest try and do the dress code before Mass. I, I just don't think it's right. going to help. And, I, you know, a bishop trying to give a dress code, it's not going to, you've got to have some kind of preparatory work where people can understand right. uh, why the dress code is important, why it is a reflection of who you are, and why it's a reflection of your respect for the sacrament and your respect for the Lord. Uh, you you kind of have to do a catechesis of the dress code before you can try right. and impose well, like it. You, yeah. Like you said, the more you understand the importance and the holiness of what's going on, the more likely yeah. is it for you to want to feel like you're doing more. That's right, and I think part, of, yeah, I think part of it is you know bringing back not only the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, but the real holiness and reverence at Mass. That's a starting point because uh, dress is going to follow from what we believe uh, we are entering right. into, and unfortunately, we had a period really starting in the mid 1960s that was a a period of strong desacralization right. going all the way through the 90s really and and so I think a lot of our kids today they they really don't get it they they you know they don't have that same sense of the sacred that same uh, sense of of being in the presence of the right. holy of oh. holies that, right. ah exactly right. and so we we do have a but like I said I, I don't think the putting a dress code on the poor priest okay. or bishop is going to work Okay, very good. On that yep. point, we shall take a break. Much more with Father Spitzer. We'll be back with your questions and the topic about the devil. Stay with us.
And we appreciate you staying with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe, our topic, How the Devil Works, from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. And based on Father's book, you understand he works overtime, but we'll talk about that in a, in a second. Uh, let's get to a couple more questions first. Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. I have read in the scriptures that God raised Jesus from the dead and also that Jesus raised himself from the dead, which is correct or are both correct since Jesus is true God and true man. When I read the name of God, I have assumed it's usually referring to God the Father. I appreciate your clarification or any clarification you can share, Barb. Uh, yeah, well, of course, you answered your own question there mm -hmm. uh, because it's really both. And, um, you know, obviously, in, you know, when you say God raised him from the dead, you're talking about God the Father, yes, but also Jesus in his divine nature uh, is co-involved with everything that the Father does. So in a sense, you could say Jesus in his divine nature is raising his human nature from the dead and glorifying it. So you, you do have the correct answer to your own question. And it's both. And of course, in, in, the, uh, in the letters of St. Paul, it is sometimes a little confusing because mm -hmm. he does switch back and forth precisely because it is both. And so he doesn't have any trouble kind of switching back and forth, uh, you know, from he was raised from the dead to he is risen from the dead. Mm -hmm. So um, this happens and uh, the change in, in phraseology, I think it just happened so spontaneously in Paul's mind because he knows it's both. But you did, you did answer your own question, so uh, good, good going. So here we are in Holy Week, so here's a question related. Dear mm -hmm. Father Spitzer, can you tell me what Jesus meant when he said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not over me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the day shall come wherein they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have not born. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall upon us and to the hills cover us. For if they mm -hmm. do this, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? This is Lisa. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, basically, uh, the wood is green, that's close to the time of Jesus. When the wood is dry, when it's more distant from the time of Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So, it takes some time for wood to move from green to dry. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, if, if they're already, uh, you know, doing this to me, when, as it were, when the uh, wood is green, uh, now you're going to go some distance from, uh, you know, the time of my life uh, uh, in, in the life of the church. Just wait, uh, because as we kind of move out there, uh, it's going to get even more and more uh, difficult as, you know, persecutions begin to arise. And we have seen this time and again in history. Uh, clearly, Jesus is talking about the final, final end um, in this uh, passage. It's a prophetic passage, mm -hmm. but also uh, you can see that there are various um, uh, sort of intermediary phases where there have just been terrible times in the church, terrible persecutions yeah. that were done for like 300 years, uh, you know, before 313. Oh my gosh, you know, the the mm -hmm. terrible persecutions of the Christian church. So, um, uh, you know, you can You've see... Also, you also the, got the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, right? So, absolutely. Right. All of these things. And so there's, there's no question that Jesus is saying, yes, uh, times are bad now, but, uh, uh, you know, um, 
times are going to be even more challenging mm -hmm. uh, coming forth. And uh, uh, I want, Jesus always told the truth, right? He, he was always truth in advertising. He was mm -hmm. always saying, you know, if you're going to follow me, get ready. There's going to be some really tough times right. going forward. And of course, all this leads up to the final end. And that's going to be a really, really tough time. But in the end, the saints are going to uh, be moving into the heavenly kingdom. And right. those who are not will go their own way according to their own choice. Right. Uh, because as I said, God doesn't have to send anyone into the realm of darkness. Uh, we choose it, uh, allow ourselves to be seduced by it. We do a perfectly good job ourselves in running toward the goal. Right, there you go. Another question, a quickie here. Dear Father Spitzer, why doesn't God reveal himself to everyone so there's no doubt that God exists? Couldn't God just pop into everyone's living room, tell them he exists and to change their ways and transform the world, Brian? Well, Brian, because God is not going to enslave you to a miracle, if I might hmm. plagiarize from the great Dostoevsky. I mean, uh, the idea here is that God wants us to be free. And what does that mean initially? We have to be looking for God. Uh, just, uh, you know, writing a book on uh, modern miracles, uh, you know, dealing in particular with Lourdes. And it just amazes me how so many within the medical community who sort of do have a religious component in their lives. And in about, you know, believe it or not, yeah, about 76% of doctors believe in God. Mm -hmm. And about uh, two thirds of them actually um, are religious practitioners of that 76%, mm -hmm. uh, uh, two thirds of them are religious practitioners. Now you look at that and you go, well, what's their interpretation? Yeah, they don't have a difficulty uh, believing in miracles. So, not surprising, 73% of doctors believe in miracles past and present. Now, you look at that and you go, aha, so they are looking for God. Mm -hmm. Now, if initially you are looking for God, then you're going to start seeing evidence. Doctors will see evidence in their medical profession. Physicists will see evidence in uh, looking at cosmology and looking at the, the fine-tuning constants and looking at the Bordeaux-Lincoln and Guth uh, 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 theorem and so forth and so on. So all of these things, right, you know, they, they become evidence not only for God, but evidence for providence. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, you're free uh, to believe. However, God leaves us, you know, plenty of deniability. So let's suppose you just witnessed a miracle where literally, you know, one of the great Lord's miracles is a guy who has a completely disconnected, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the lower part of his leg disconnected from the upper part of his leg. Mm -hmm. And literally, uh, they, they can't restore it because of, you know, the cancerous growth, et cetera, et cetera, that's in there. And, and of course, he, he's asked to amputate it, and didn't want to amputate it, well, goes to this Lord's Shrine, and then boom, all this tissue and, and bone is regenerated and fused absolutely perfectly uh, and almost instantaneously. Mm -hmm. Now, you look at that miracle and, you know, if if it were me, you know, I'd look at that and go, that, that's, that's a miracle. Mm -hmm. I mean, this, this is not, uh, you know, nature as we know it. This is an organic miracle that is just like, this doesn't happen. So I would say that's a miracle. But some people go, wow, 
auto-suggestion is really powerful. <laughs> you know? Now, but it, there's always deniability, and, and God allows there to be deniability. So you could say, oh, maybe there's fraud. Oh, okay, you got the x-rays, no fraud. Okay, well, then there's auto-suggestion. You can always go back to auto-suggestion. You can always go back to something like, you know, we just don't know the true power of the, of the human mind when it is focusing on so forth and so on. You can do anything you want to interpret that miracle. If you don't want to see God, if mm -hmm. you're not looking for God, if you don't want to accept that there are certain moral standards that God is asking of you through your conscience and through uh, you know, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you don't want to accept that, well, you've got deniability. You're gonna be free. Now just imagine this. God comes into your living room and says, Hey, Spitzer, hey, you know, I exist, and I'm going to prove it to you now. Watch what happens when I blow, uh, you know, the room next door right out of oblivion. Okay, uh, you know, now, am I going to believe? Very probable, and probably. Am I going to do that out of fear? Yes. It's not because I want to believe. It's not because I'm looking for God. It's not that I want God in my life. It's not that I want to listen to my conscience. It's not that I want to get my conscience interpreted through you know, a revelation that's higher than me. It's not for any of those reasons. It's because I'm just plumb scared of the guy who can annihilate me in the next second. Okay, so, I mean, there's no freedom in that, and God doesn't want any part of mm -hmm. an unfreeing activity, as Dostoevsky said. He's not going to uh, enslave us to a miracle. Right. And so the idea is we've got to have always deniability in order to be free. Freedom is what matters. At the end of the day, that determines the course on which you are moving, right. toward the light or toward the darkness. And that's why it's faith and not certitude, right? That's right. That's why every time you say, well, that, that's clearly a miracle. There's faith in that statement. The best that you can say neutrally is, wow, that is a completely scientifically inexplicable series of events. Right. We have absolutely no way of explaining that naturally by today's science. But like I said, you can always say, right. huh, there's the science of the future, which will discover all kinds of new laws. And then, of course, completely spontaneous regenerations of tissue and bone will happen. And dead tissue is no longer dead. That's not a problem anymore in the new science. You can say right. that. Or you could say autosuggestion is really amazing. Autosuggestion can regenerate tissue and bone and refuse it together in perfect symmetrical form. So you can say whatever you want, but it's all deniable. Right. But the minute you say that's a miracle, you have faith. faith and right. so um, and w that's what's required, and that's what God wants, to protect our freedom and even to protect the freedom of the person who doesn't want to believe in him. Right. Well, let's move on to the, uh, the fellow uh, down under there who's got some other perspectives, how the devil <laughs> right. works, Satan's tactics. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you talk about at the top of uh, page 193, you're talking about these three dimensions mm -hmm. of paths that we talked about earlier. You talk about us unleashing tremendous divine forces embedded in the providential conspiracy around us. What is a providential conspiracy? <laughs> well, basically, it just means this, that God is guiding us in ways that are so subtle, we, we, we just can't quite put it all together unless we're looking for God. 
So in other words, um, you know, uh, in, in our own lives, you know, if, if we uh, uh, kind of think about it, and that's what Ignatius, St. Ignatius wants us to do in the spiritual exercise, he's trying to get us to reflect on it, or he's trying to get us to see, okay, so maybe, you mean that guy who mentioned this thing that got me to think this, and then the next day I opened this book and I saw this thing that got me to think this, then the next day when I tried to take this path and I was completely blocked off, so I had to kind of veer off and take this path, you mean all that stuff fits together like a bunch of subtle jigsaw puzzle pieces, and all of a sudden it forms like a, you know, a little helping, guiding, directional mm -hmm. beacon for me to follow. And then that little thought I had in the back of my mind, that wasn't my subconscious being really, really smart, but maybe kind of a providential you know, inspiration that sort of says, go that way. And, mm -hmm. and, and then when I started going that way, I felt a sense of energy and consolation, and maybe that came from God. Well, it's like subtle piece one with subtle piece two with subtle piece three with subtle piece four with subtle piece five. And you put it all together, though, and you look at it in retrospect, right? And that's the important thing. In retrospect, you go, God really guided me. That was really great. But then, of course, when you're looking forward, you're kind of, you're still in the maze and you're still in the haze. So because of that, you're sort of trying to look at it. But if you start kind of following where the, 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 you know, the little beacon seems to be leading, where that little glimmer of light is, if you're open to seeing the glimmer of light, that's what Jesus wants, right? He wants mm -hmm. you to be open to it, to be looking for it. If you're looking for that little beacon of light, honestly, if you are open to God's gui guiding path, then the subtle little pieces come together. Mm -hmm. If you're praying to the Lord for guidance, the subtle little pieces will come together. And then all of a sudden you go, how did I get to this place right here? I was back doing this over here in T sub 1, and now in T sub 3, I'm doing this other thing uh, sort of off the path, but nevertheless much better. How did that happen? And then you start looking backwards mm -hmm. and you go, this and this and this. Oh, you're so sly, Lord. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're very subtle indeed. Oh, I see what you're doing over mm -hmm. here. And of course, I, I do. That's just, sometimes I'm in the chapel and I finally look retrospectively right. and I go, oh my goodness, you know, Lord, <laughs> I see what you're up to. Uh, thank you very, very much. You know, I'm glad I'm over here and not mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I do see it and I do, I kind of appreciate it in my little, uh, uh, way, you know, and I sometimes right. actually say it like that. Oh, I, oh, I get you now. <laughs> I'm with you now. I get it, you know, and thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And so that's my, my little prayer. Uh, but he is subtle mm. and he has to be subtle to main, you know, help us maintain our freedom. But at the same time, the beacon's there. If we're looking, if we're trying to follow, if we're asking him for guidance, don't worry, he will provide it. Right. Now you also say here, the more we, we're, we progress on our path, the more we'll be able to help others on their own path of salvation. How so? Well, you know, again, you know, as St. Teresa of Avila says in that wonderful interior castle, right, uh, if you haven't had an experience of these things, you're probably not going to be able to experience, uh, to, to, uh, to know what I'm talking about precisely. It'll only be hazy to you. And if you only have a hazy understanding of what I'm trying to say, you shouldn't be teaching this to anybody. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, if you do have the experience 
and then you've turned around and you you get it you've tried to understand what happened in that experience and how god was guiding you you're probably going to have a lot of good spiritual wisdom and you'll probably be a very good spiritual guide mm -hmm. so in other words the the idea would be it's not just the experience you have to reflect on the experience in the light of the teaching of Jesus as interpreted by the church. And if you do that, if you're looking for that light of Jesus interpreted by the church, you reflect on that experience, that spiritual experience you've had. I'm telling you, you get a wisdom from it. And that wisdom can really help you to help others. And uh, boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing like was. And there's always a lot of people who really do, uh, you know, y you know, think that they have a lot mm -hmm. of experience, but they haven't reflected on it. That's a problem, because then you know the experience, y y you know, you if you don't quite know what to make of it, mm -hmm. it's not quite wisdom yet. It's not quite you know the tempered um, uh, knowledge yet. And, and similarly, if you have no experience, religious experience at all, I mean, I can't see how people who do not pray can want to teach people how to pray or make suggestions, uh, you know, to people on how to pray. And so, you, you know, the first thing to, you know, to, to you know, want to find out is somebody wants to, to be a spiritual director or say something mm -hmm. is find out how much they pray, mm -hmm. you know, and, and when they pray, do they know who they're really praying to, you know, the, 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 the deity that is before them that is adorable and beautiful mm. and truth-filled and, and good to the core that you're there, you know, with them. And if there is that reverential uh, awareness and that there is that movement from vocal prayer to mental prayer and there is, you know, that, that contemplation that's there, okay, all right, now we're in a position, mm -hmm. you know, because people like that are on the road to conversion. And if they're on the road to conversion, as, you know, St. Ignatius would say, the first thing, of course, is stop the mortal sins. Mm -hmm. Then the next passage, stop the venial sins. And if they're on that road to conversion and they're basically trying to follow as best they can, um, you know, that, that wisdom, they're probably going to be a pretty good spiritual guide for you. Mm -hmm. And so... Uh, uh, but but uh, you really do want people who who are on the road to conversion mm -hmm. and who really do pray. A lot of people have a lot of suggestions and a lot of devotions, and those devotions and suggestions can be very, very good, and they can be within God's providence. But again, you want people who are praying mm -hmm. and people who are on the road to conversion. Right. That's your best bet. Well, let me ask you, you got the church teaches us that in cases of mortal sin, it's on the pay, bottom of 193, we should avail ourselves to the sacrament of reconciliation for absolution, which you've yeah. been promoting heavily, uh, always, yeah. but certainly through this book. As we yeah. shall see, mortal sin has three conditions, grave matter, so people kind of get that, mm -hmm. sufficient reflection, well, how do you define sufficient, but mm -hmm. then full consent to the will, can anybody ever yeah. give full consent to the will? Well, you know, I mean, basically the church believes, and Jesus Christ, I think, believes that people can give full consent to the will. In other words, uh, by full consent of the will, that means there's not a mitigating circumstance which is going to impede you uh, in behaving the right way. 
Now, could uh, you know, there are lots of times when I act, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I, you know, let's suppose I, I'm committing, uh, you know, something that's, you know, uh, I'm going in the wrong direction, let's say, and I want to, to, to go in the wrong direction, and let's, I want to steal something in the store. You know, and really you could say, well, he was deprived as a child. He was this, he was that. But short of real kleptomania, mm. short of, you know, having an external thing like my kids have no food on the table, I got to get something over to the house. Short of, you know, those kinds of external circumstances or a deep interior kleptomania, you know, that, that for which mm. there are causes or a personality disorder, etc. Short of those things, really, you are, you know, basically free not to steal that item. And so, you know, even if you are living in some tough circumstances, you're still free not to steal the item. So, yeah, you could have full consent of the will. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of people in a lot of other circumstances. You know, if you've got a person with a sexual addiction, mm -hmm. this... You know, people say, can they have full consent of the will? A real addict can't. Mm -hmm. No, you, you got to deal with the addiction first. I mean, because, you know, people are going to go out and they're going to repeat these things. But it is your responsibility to try and get into a 12-step program. Or try and right. get, you know, you have to try and get some, you know, pro programming on your computer that's going to, right. you know, eliminate the... Well, that's the what I was going to ask you. Is, is, there, is there a, a point in the spectrum that someone gets on? I mean, there may be people who like a drug, they take a drug once and they're addicted forever. There's many other cases people slowly become addicted to these situations. So aren't they making informed decisions as they go along that yeah, they have they, some they responsibility are. for, right? They are, and that's why, you know, in a way, you also have a responsibility to get off. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to get off instantaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, normally, it requires a period of time. And so, in a way, a person who still is... Kind of, if you're taking responsible action to get over, let's call it a sexual addiction or a drinking addiction or whatever, the drug addiction or whatever it is, if you're taking the steps to do that right basically you know you're you're much less culpable uh, for the the action that you're taking right mm -hmm. but if you if you're taking no steps to overcome let's say one of these various addictions or to overcome another uh, you know, um, situation in mm -hmm. which you're in. So let's suppose you got in with a bad group of people who does this and that, and now you're finding it very difficult to get out because they go, hey, you try and get out of this criminal gang here, mm -hmm. uh, you're going to be dead, I'm going to snuff you. Okay, mm -hmm. so your freedom, therefore, your so-called full consent of the will is definitely mitigated. Mm -hmm. So, but the idea is you have to take steps in order to try and get out of that problematic condition. Because if you're taking no steps at all, mm -hmm. then in a way you're culpable, not for the maybe the sin of looking at the pornography at the moment you're looking at it, but you're guilty of another sin, of taking no steps to get out of right. this addiction. Uh, I, I'm not going to buy... Uh, the software just yeah I'm not going to go to an accountability group for my computer thing 
just yet. I'm mm -hmm. not going to go to uh, you know a 12-step program, even an anonymous one on the computer, just yet. You know, I'm not going to do any of these things. Um, you know, I gotta because. Uh, you know, I got full consent. I, I don't have full consent of the will. Right. It's not I, my fault. Uh, that it's not my fault. You can't do that. You really do have to take some steps in order for the non-culpability to take hold. So right. that's uh, basically the thought. And uh, but it really, you know, full consent of the will is that's, you know, I mean, it's tough. I mean, there right. are even. Um, you know, uh, habits, uh, you know, that cause, right. that are tantamount to an addiction to, and of course personality disorders are very, right. you know, that mitigates right. freedom and Absolutely. So well, I have so, to take responsibility right now and let you know that we are just out of time and you have to uh, <laughs> give us your blessing out the door, okay? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, uh, who really does know us through and through to our center, help and guide you to the fullness of your freedom, to the fullness of the freedom that permits that love to grow within your heart, to follow him and to, to convert in ever more deep ways, especially in this holy week, to bring it to fruition so that you might not only be saved, but lead others to that salvation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father Spitzer. We shall see you next week. And again, Father Spitzer's books, DVDs, all available through our EWTN Religious Catalog. Next week, we continue talking about the two common defenses against evil. And also, EWTN bookmark, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume by Cardinal Fernando Villani. Very interesting book and very important. Coming up, The Last Days, a reenactment of the Passion of Christ starring Jonathan Rumi of Chosen Fame. Holy Thursday at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Good Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Don't miss that. Holy Week events, Easter Sunday, everything happening from Rome, Washington, special programming, the Lord's Resurrection. The place to find it, EW10.com, for all the information for the exact times in your area. We shall see you next time on Father Spitzer's Universe. Be there.